0: Welcome to Uplifting Women podcast. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net as well as Holly Teska Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Join our co-hosts, Holly Teska and Kristen Strunk, thought partners in the world of leadership, equality, and personal and professional development. Listen as they bring stories of inspirational women and their allies who are working every day for authentic leadership, equality, and inclusion in business, education, and community. These are the stories of the people whose mission it is to ensure others are seen, heard, and respected. They've overcome challenges in the workplace and the world or supported other women in doing so. Holly and Kristen are committed to uplifting women's voices, sharing inspiration, advice, and maybe even a few laughs from women and their allies about the work they are doing to promote inclusion and equality in our world. They believe that by sharing stories of challenge and triumph, We can all make the world a better place as we inspire others to step fully into their personal leadership space. We are so happy you have joined us today for our conversation.
1: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Uplifting Women podcast. This is Holly Tesca, and I'm here with my co host, Kristen Strunk. And today we have with us a really special guest, Rebecca Sive. Rebecca began her fight for women's rights as a college student at Carleton College, where she was a lead organizer and spokesperson for a group of women who successfully worked to obtain gynecological services on campus in the early 70s. She was a founder of the collective InforWomen in the mid 70s, which published the Chicago Women's Directory. I, I will murder this name, Rebecca. Can you say that?
2: Chicago. Guia para las mujeres.
1: Wonderful. The first guide to women's services in Chicago. As part of the Illinois Bicentennial Year celebration in 1976, Sive served as project director for the first statewide exhibit of the history of women in that state for the American Jewish Committee, Institute on Pluralism and Group Identity. As part of her work with that group, she was the first organizer of and the spokesperson for the National Women's Agenda in Illinois. She's got a new book out um, called Make, Her Story, Your Story, A Guided Journal to Justice Every Day for Every Woman. I have to say, I've started working with this book. I just commented to Rebecca that it feels like having a coach on my desk. Rebecca, to say we're excited to have you here today with us is a complete understatement. I also have to do a shout out to my good friend, Audrey Denneke for introducing us. Audrey is a good friend and was an early guest on our podcast. So Rebecca, thank you so
2: much. I can't wait to hear more about your story. Thank you. I It's a pleasure to be here. And I was just so glad to talk with you about your work and what you're doing. And also to hear from Audrey, who uh, to put this all in a historical context, she and I worked together close to 40 years ago at the Midwest Women's Center in Chicago. And she was one of the earliest staff members running a really set of important programs. And so we've all come up together in this work. And that's really my story trying to advance women in every way that I can. Yeah.
1: And that's so important. We always love to start on the podcast by going back to where did this all start Mm -hmm. and where does the fire in your belly for supporting women Clearly you've made this a life, your life's work, which is always so amazing to see. And I love being among other women that feel so passionately about bringing just, we're not talking about extraordinary things. We're talking about basic human needs, and wants, and things that can help women feel that they've got a purpose in life, and that they matter, and they matter just as much as their male counterparts. Where did the fire in your belly start?
2: I grew up in a very political family, and I think I have to give my parents the credit. They were both involved in local good works of various kinds in a small suburban town outside New York City where I grew up. And we were involved in Democratic Party politics. And actually, my mother became the first woman president of our local school board, a very typical role for women, a very important one. She had to fight hard for that to happen. That was in the, I believe, late 60s. In my father's case, he ran for Congress when I was eight years old and in a very uh, Republican district. So, and he was a young man at the time. I think he was 36. I actually campaigned with him as a kid. I went with him, not everywhere, obviously, but. What What was that like? What was that like? I worshiped my father and he was very oldest of five. He was equally fond of all of us, but as the oldest, I got to do things first. And mm-hmm. I was old enough at that time to walk around with him. We went to some, we call it, like county fairs together and just walking the street, knocking on doors as candidates do. I remember going to a couple of hotels where they were with my parents, where there was some sort of receptions, but basically, you know, as an eight-year-old, I just, my eyes were opened to another experience mm-hmm. and, Though he lost, he did better than any Democrat had ever done and continued his great work. So it was one chapter for me as a young person in seeing what you can do in the public square.
1: Yeah, what a powerful experience for a young girl to be part of. You're very fortunate to have seen that. I I can't imagine because I envision... Like you said, lots of door knocking, I envision parties, lots of handshaking, meeting important people, <laughs> all of which you did, you you knew nothing of, but what an exciting thing for a child to get to do. Yeah.
2: yeah. And he was a teetotaler. He wasn't really a glad hander. He was a serious man and, and a serious person and very intense, I would say about his commitment to the public good. And so I think what I really saw most was uh, someone who really cared a lot and would work hard.
1: Wow. So continue on your story. I'm sorry, I, I sidelined us by asking how that felt as an eight year old, because I, I was thinking of myself as an eight year old when you'd mentioned that.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure. I guess that's really what was my first political experience. I, I One other salient experience, I think, from my childhood. I guess when I was around 13, my father led a, a movement to prevent a nuclear power plant from being built on the Hudson River in a beautiful spot. It you know, it was unnecessary. It would have been a travesty. And that went on for a number of years, and they ultimately prevailed in the Supreme Court. But early on, they uh, did all sorts of public events to promote the importance of saving Storm King, which is the mountain on the Hudson. <clears throat> and one, one day, I guess it must have been a weekend, they invited Justice Douglas, William O. Douglas, who sat on the Supreme Court at that time, who was a great environmentalist, to accompany the group on a walk along the Hudson just to show, you know, how beautiful it is. Wow! And I, and I went on that walk with my father, with Justice Douglas, various other people. I don't believe my mother was there. She had four more kids to take care of, but that was pretty formative.
1: Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah, we have your father to thank in part for oh,
2: that not yes. happening. And My mother too. I think that yeah, you know, I have a sister who's two years younger and very accomplished person. And I, I give lots of credit to my mother for a level of discipline and perseverance, and intellect. My parents were both geniuses in my view, and so there was a combination of qualities that they demonstrated and. Mm-hmm lessons they taught and typical of a lot of kids. We were expected to get good grades and be girl, good Girl Scouts and all the kinds of things that growing up in the fifties and the sixties were about. So I credit both of my parents. My mother is still alive. She's 98 and she Wonderful. edits my books.
1: <laughs> she edits your books. Wow. That's amazing. I send her
2: book and she says, here, what about this?
1: Oh, that is amazing. Yeah,
3: it is what, amazing. A, what an interesting childhood. And I'm thinking into some of that involvement in local government, in yes. some of those local things that your mother did and some of those broader things that your father did. And I'm, I'm just interested in your thoughts around, are there things that we can and maybe should be teaching young women, girls? who might not have that exposure at home, but around being an advocate, around being involved, how do you feel about having those conversations with younger children? And how do you think we can spur some excitement and engagement in some things that maybe have gone by the wayside in terms of getting involved in some of those things?
2: I'm really glad you brought that up because you're exactly right. We all, there are certain things, I had certain experiences, but not other experiences. We all have the familial context. And then what we need is other contexts as well. And as you point out, one of those is learning how to be civically engaged and I, engaged in your neighborhood and your church or your synagogue or your mosque or whatever it is. And the point there being that there's so much public work to be done that needs to be done, and it can start at a very young age. And yes, I think it's critical to have conversations with children. I think it's critical to give them experiences of doing good for other people. That is very easy to do. When you're five years old, you can hand out food in the food pantry or for instance. I think it's critical for children to have the experience and then for the adults around them to say, this is what, explain why it's important, explain why it should be a part of your life going forward. There are also, as uh, I know more about what's available for girls and for boys, but there are definitely organizations that focus on young women, high school women, college age women, that do teach them specifically about how to engage in public leadership. There's uh, Running Start, which is a wonderful organization based in Washington, another one called Ignite. Both of the, those are just two that I know about mm-hmm. and really think highly of. And they teach young women how to be leaders and how to get engaged politically. And to your lastly, I would say to your point about engaging locally. I say this all the time. I actually was in Atlanta a couple Fridays ago, giving a speech to a group of business executives. And I said, you know, what you do or what your colleagues do in um, your town is as important as what's going on in Washington, DC. Don't ever forget. that. That's
1: such an important point. We interviewed a woman a few weeks back and her episode is coming up. Um, at this point in time, by the time yours has dropped, it will have been dropped. But her name is Joby Murray, and she is involved in an organization called Kids Impact Community. Mm -hmm. And they too, they look for creative community service projects Mm -hmm. that are designed for even the youngest children Mm -hmm. that they can help. It might just be putting something in a little bag or something very simple. But Mm -hmm. what you call out is so important. This isn't What's going on in our communities isn't for somebody else to solve. It's for us to solve.
2: Mm-hmm. No, you know? I, that's it. And there's such an opportunity for women as there is for men. But I think that for reasons both good and bad, women are around children more than men are in the common typical familial experience. So they have an opportunity to really educate these children. And I think that increasingly it's changed a lot in a positive direction in the last decade. There are women running for office locally in positions, school boards, library boards, plan commission, sheriff, whatever it is, woman came by our house recently who was in charge of zoning. These are, that was an appointed position. So uh, there's such an opportunity at that local level to be really, not only contribute charitably your time or your money, but to be a leader in making policy decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Really drive people's lives.
1: Absolutely. And where else? We're better place to start than in your own community where you're known and you understand Mm -hmm. the challenges and all the rest of it. But yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing work. And I really, I love that when we're starting with children, because then it becomes part of who they are and how they view the world. It's not something extra to be added in. It's just part Mm -hmm. of who they are. So did you first Really start getting into this when you got into college. Is that when, obviously, all these experiences led you um, to think more broadly about what was your commitment to the world right. and and how you wanted? But it sounds from your bio, at least, you first started getting very serious about this was in college. So
2: yeah, when I was in college in the turn of the sixties and the early seventies, and that was a time of great. Probably every time is great turmoil. But after the civil rights movement during the height of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. there were important books published at that time. The Sisterhood is Powerful was one, The Dialectic of Sex, uh, Susan Brownmiller's book about rape. These were really formative texts uh, about feminism, mm-hmm. and they were passed around among us. So, yes, for me, learning about Feminism, learning about the importance of reproductive autonomy, economic equal rights, and all of that began in college and at a time when others were uh, thinking along the same lines. And I, that I just wow, we can do this.
1: Right. And I want to point out because we've got many younger listeners on here that we mm-hmm. sometimes are helping to remind them of history that the reason those were important texts were up until that part, talking about those topics was mm-hmm. completely taboo. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. A woman should find out about how her reproductive system works.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: uh, unbelievable. But if you weren't part of that time in history, you don't understand. And this was highly debated s- topics. Yeah, yeah. We're going to yeah. talk about sex openly <laughs> and reproduction and, We're actually going to tell women how to protect themselves and about what to do about rape. And this isn't ancient history, really new, which is what can, what continues to worry me. That fight was long and hard to get those resources available to women. And I don't want younger women to forget and lose that. What's going on, not to get this political, worries me what's going on with the abortion rights in this country. And whether you are for or against abortion, and that's your own personal choice, it's still an individual's choice.
2: I think that you're absolutely correct that the twin pillars, so to speak, of women's women's human rights is reproductive autonomy and equal economic position. So one without the other, there isn't any such thing. So You're right. It was really, I guess, I would say the National Organizations for Women, which was formed in the mid-60s by Betty Friedan and others that really focused on the economic issues. And then later in the late 60s, Planned Parenthood began to turn to these issues of not just services, but advocacy for reproductive autonomy, as well as NARAL. And of course, in 1973, Roe became the law of the land, recognizing the right to privacy, exactly as you put it a moment ago, Holly, that women have the right to control their own bodies. And here we are in 2022, anticipating a couple Supreme Court decisions, which may, if not overthrow, significantly curtail uh, that constitutional right. So it really does behoove younger women to, if they haven't paid attention yet, to pay attention now, and the likelihood being that this fight for women's reproductive rights will return to the states.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's quite frightening, is, is what it is, because it takes us back 50 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, 50 I, years. Well, that's right. Some of us were married before Roe. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't married before Roe, but
1: I, I do remember when credit cards were first yep. made available to women without their husband or, your, or their father having to sign for it. Yep. And um, even that, it, it shocks people. My own children weren't aware of that until I pointed it out to them. Shocking. Oh my gosh, what do you mean? <laughs> Why wouldn't you be able to get your own credit card? It's really right. crazy. It's really right. crazy. So tell us a little bit about what are you all involved in these days and where are you putting your energies and how can we help? Because Kristen and I are very passionate about this stuff.
2: There's a role for every single one of us. You've obviously got one right here with this wonderful podcast, educating women about what they can do. I could just add on to that. But to answer your question, my effort principally at the present has been writing and number one, speaking number two, and then continuing to be an advocate in various contexts, particularly political ones for women in government and politics. So my, I guess about a decade ago, I turned my attention to writing seriously. I had written a lot before that, but I've written three books in the last decade, stunning my own self, one is Every Day is Election Day, which is a guide for women who want to run for office, which tells lessons learned, important stories from about 30 different women around the country who I interviewed, and I combined their ideas with mine. So it's a very practical, hands-on how-to from the PTA to the White House as the subhead. And then in 2018, I was really impelled to write about how to elect a first woman president. The book is called Vote Her In. And uh, that, of course, was a result of what happened in 2016, when we did have our first uh, ever woman presidential candidate in a major party ticket. And she lost to someone much less qualified and unsuited, in my view, to being president. So I wrote Vote Her In, which was both inspirational in the manifesto, and again, a kind of tool for women to use for organizing on the electoral front. And it focused, and I want to just underscore this, on the importance of executive power, because what's political power, because what's happened in the last four decades, basically, is women have started moving to slow but steady progress into legislative positions, in federally and locally and in states but the move into executive positions governors presidents uh, heads of local county boards is mayors has been much slower the percentages are much smaller and so voter in through the under the rubric of discussing How to Elect Our First Woman President talked about the importance of executive power and why and how it's different from legislative power and therefore key for women to attain. And then my last book uh, just came out a couple of months ago. It's called Make Her Story, Your Mm -hmm. Story, Your Guided Journal to Justice Every Day for Every Woman. And as Holly and I were discussing, this was Basically, my pandemic project, I just felt, let me do something positive here to help women prepare uh, for when we exit this pandemic. And I looked around. I didn't I like the idea of journaling. I didn't see anything that was focused on women's public lives as opposed to their private lives or you know, personal family situations. Mm-hmm. And so this is a journal that takes women through the steps of Uh, essentially visualizing planning writing committing to their public work whatever kind of public work it is not necessarily just not only political so the book's been out for a couple months and I like talking about it as much as I can I think it's really great for younger women that's a lot of the feedback I've gotten and uh,
1: I've certainly been enjoying it as I I said earlier uh, snippets of time. It causes me to pause and reflect on the questions that you've placed in it so very carefully. And I I have to agree. It's just, it's a soft cover book. So it also feels cuddly. How is (laughs) that?
2: It's interesting you say that because I, yeah, I feel like you can just Push it in your jacket pocket. And it's
1: got a very soft touch cover to it. So that's why I say it's cuddly. So everybody, people that know me know I'm a little bit crazy, but that's okay. Kristen's making a funny face at me. One of the things I want to go back to is where you were talking about women in executive roles. Right. That's not only an issue in political scenes, it is an issue across corporate America as well.
2: Absolutely,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I really wonder when and how we're going to push through that, because the movement has been so
2: slow. That's right. Exactly. Um, If you look across the institutional sectors of American life, business, government, philanthropy, education, civic organizations, the higher up in the decision-making structure you go the fewer women there are and the larger the institution is the fewer women there are and it is only in your and my generation holly that women have attained these positions in more than just absolutely token numbers so i was talking just by way of example recently I, i kind of hadn't focused on this a couple friends of mine who are professors Art professors, actually, they are in their early 60s. They are the first women to hold full professorships that are endowed with a chair, you know, named chair in their universities in the histories of places. So, this is all very recent. It's troublesome because the numbers are so small. And I guess to go to what's the strategy for breaking this down or getting things to move more quickly. I do think that having more women run people's lives publicly, that is, president, mayors, as I said before, governors, is because government has a power that business doesn't have. It can regulate business. So I think, and it has a symbolic presence and a resonance, obviously, that business doesn't have. It isn't the shaper of our country. So I believe that an important activity for women who want to see the more women in executive positions wherever they are is to really fight for this in the public arena by supporting women candidates for executive office. As far as the within business and say education where the numbers are equally egregious, there is a second generation coming along. I think women in there who are around 50, I know a couple women I uh, taught with at University of Chicago, one of whom is now the head of a major college. That is happening more frequently. And I do believe that those women just have to be advocates for others and to not only advocate, but to fill the ranks of their administrations with women because it's it, that's the pipeline, right?
1: Yeah, and, and I think you raise a really important point. This government so follows business. I had never thought of it in that in, until you just brought that up. Mm-hmm. And it makes so much sense. And your point about women advocating for other women, we have a saying here at Uplifting Women, it's called Uplifting Women Uplift Women. Mm -hmm. we are all in this together and we have to help each other through this. The sisterhood is quite powerful. Mm -hmm. I was just speaking with a a young woman who is just, she's quite driven in her career and really trying to get ahead. And Mm -hmm. she, she just learned that she's um, expecting her first child. And this is, this child is very wanted and, but she's scared about how this will impact her career, her trajectory. And men don't have to worry about that.
2: Why is that? They're part of the equation. That's just, it's a sexist world. And and the the notion is is. just as true across institutions that women hold too little executive power. It's true across cultures and religions and national borders, Mm -hmm. continental borders, that there were, there was a Sort of women's roles and men's roles i'm oversimplifying but it is it's true certainly here in the u.s that the notion that women should have equal opportunity in, say the business world with men is that's a phenomenon of of the 70s and forward yeah very recent history
3: I want to, I want to dive into this a little bit more because as we're looking at things right now, as they stand, we're going through things that we're calling the great resignation. We have seen Mm -hmm. women's careers sidelined by COVID because of caretaking responsibilities, because they're just tired of fighting Mm -hmm. there. So when I hear these things and I think about, okay, the average woman, I'm going to use the word average, and I'm probably mm-hmm. talking about somebody who's above average when I say probably has a full-time job. Probably mm-hmm. if you approached her about running for the school board or the library board would probably laugh hysterically. Even getting involved in the PTA is a push. And so I'm interested in your perspective on, mm-hmm. we tout this conversation about burnout as well you just have to take care of yourself you just you've got to you have to say no to things you have to balance and really prioritize and I'm wondering how you see that conversation I have to focus on my family I have to really name my priorities so I can't get involved in these other things because they're extra to what I'm doing
2: you know what, I I actually, you've raised a number of important points, but let me start at the most grassroots local community level. It is the case, recession, COVID, the great resignation, you name it, whatever circumstance we're presently in or have been in, it is women who run communities. There's no doubt about it, whether, however, that community is structured. It's women who, you know, organize the bake sale. It's women who organize the meetings for kids. It's women who are the backbone of local athletic leagues, you name it. Without women, those things would all wither and die. So it is the point being that it is already the case that the average woman and no woman is average that every woman is engaged in her community with, I would say, very rare exceptions, perhaps just very rare. Most of us are engaged. The issue isn't choosing to engage. The issue is being, number one, respected for the engagement you take on, number two, therefore being encouraged to engage more, number three, being given leadership opportunities, Number four, understanding that these opportunities, however local, are also about men asserting their power inappropriately or unnecessarily. So the issue there is women need to organize. And so we need to come together wherever that is and say, if I'm running the bake sale, I want to be president of the church auxiliary or whatever it's called i don't just want to be doing the bake sale and yes it may take more time right perhaps it will perhaps it won't baking cakes is a time consuming activity um men can bake cakes too so it has to be uh, going back to what i was you know what holly and i were talking about a moment ago about both reading and talking with other women about the importance of you know, having your consciousness raised to believe that you have the right to be somebody, you have the right to be everything you can be just as men do, that stipulates, in my view, coming together with other women to make sure that can happen. And the caveat being, as you pointed out, Kristen, that we all have constraints on our time. Most women have to work because that's how the economy is structured for most families. But that's been true for about five decades. So there are three or four generations of women, starting with mine, who have been through that process. We know what it's like to be working outside the home and inside the home and figuring other things out. So I had a very, um, one of the women I interviewed when I wrote Every Day is Election Day was the Attorney General of Illinois. She at that point had one young daughter, and we were just talking about balancing, as some people call it. And she said, no one has the right to take your dreams away from you. So that's the other piece here, that that we don't have any less as human beings to be who we wanna be.
1: Yeah.
2: it needs to be said to the people around us.
1: Absolutely. And as you were talking about the cake, I had a thought pop into my head. Yes. Uh-huh. Baking a cake is a time consuming process. Men can bake cakes too. My question is, will they?
2: They can't, they may or they may not, but I don't uh... I think the point there is not whether men will bake cakes. The point there is really about women organizing together to say, this is what time it is. This is how this is going to work. And you're not going to be here only having to park cars and deserve credit for working on the bake sale. No, you're going to have to bake a cake too. Or if there is a division of labor, it's an equal division of labor, So maybe I will bake all the cakes because you don't know how to do it. But I want the credit on that church bulletin that says I led the bake sale.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I will say I've been blessed. I have a husband who is very supportive on division of labor in terms of household things. And it's worked quite well. But I know many people that just don't have that. And it's we need to stand up and say, I don't mind going to work as I don't mind contributing to the family income and all the rest of it. But women can't be expected to be super women.
2: If you want to talk about the women who, in my view, I'm particularly concerned about finding ways to mobilize. They have enormous family commitments, enormous work commitments. They're just on time employees of businesses that don't give people a fair shake in that respect. So I think that What's going on here is that this a larger idea that for many American families, and this may be getting too heavy duty, but For many American families, wages have been stagnant since the late 1970s and family income is effectively declining and women's participation in the workforce is increasing, however episodic to Kristen's point it may be. So we're really in a different place than say we were when I was talking earlier about growing up in the 50s and the 60s. So what needs to happen now is coming to grips with this current economic context in which women are living their lives and caring for their families and figuring out what the strategies are in terms of public policy, business policy, community norms. I know this is a huge undertaking, obviously, but we're in a different place, as Kristen said, and and as the numbers tell us. So I believe that women of goodwill who are fortunate as we are to be able to spend time on this kind of thing can to contribute in whatever way we can, our thinking, our time, our writing, our podcasting Mm -hmm. uh, to help people understand that let's find a way forward. And that doesn't again, make women second-class citizens.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So as we wrap this up, Mm -hmm. Rebecca, Are there a couple, are there one or two pieces of advice that you'd like to leave for our listeners? This is just so many things for me to reflect on and think Mm -hmm. about. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I can tell Kristen has as well. Good. Absolutely. So tell us, tell our listeners, what would be the one or two things that you'd advise for them?
2: Taking, I guess I would take the book, Make Her Story, Your Story as the context for my Mm -hmm. Uh, recommendations I I think that as I mentioned a moment ago my reason for writing the book was to be helpful and give people a tool but I think the the idea behind it is what I want to share I would like for everyone to internalize make her story your story means we all are important we all have something to contribute and can contribute. And in that process, be a part of a community's larger story. So what I really want people to do is to think about, and I guess the tips I would give is really think about how you can contribute publicly, however modest it may be at the beginning. Uh, Remember that you deserve the time to do that. And you will, of course, display the discipline required to do a good job. And the last piece of it, I would just say, and it's certainly been my own experience, that there will be joy in this process of coming together with other women, with men in your community too. There's a kind of joy and contributed to the community good that I is different from the joy you have from your partnership or your family life or your children's lives. So I, those
3: are my suggestions.
1: Thank you. Thank you. hmm
3: I love that as a point of reflection in our close, Rebecca, if people want to reach out or connect with you, where are the places that they can do that?
2: Oh, thanks for asking, Kristen. I love hearing from people. My website is www.rebeccasive.com. My email Rebecca at Rebecca Sive. couldn't be easier. And so I, you can learn about my work and about this book and so on. The book is available, I would say, pretty much everywhere on the Internet and local bookstores. So, of course, I'd love for you to get the book and share with me how you use it. I do participate pretty actively on uh, LinkedIn. I have a newsletter there called Make Her Story. So if we link on LinkedIn, then you'll see it and you can subscribe. And uh, I have a Twitter feed. And And you, you also have a Facebook group, don't you? I do. I have a private Facebook group that's called Make Her Story. And so if we friend each other on Facebook, I can invite you to join or you can send me a note. And that's been wonderful. I have to say I just started that when the book was published. And there's lots of women. And we, What we do there is share inspirational stories and photos and mm-hmm uh history that we read in the paper, whatever, news clips. And it's just a very wonderful way to for me, I begin the day with it. I said, what are my girlfriends posting here?
1: So yes. Yeah. That's a great way to keep the conversation going and uh, continuing Mm -hmm. to educate ourselves and hear what other people are doing. As you say, inspirational stories are so important. So many times we think to ourselves, oh, I couldn't possibly do that because of X, fill in the blank. Then you hear a story about somebody else who did something really wonderful, and it's they can do that, I can do that. So,
2: exactly. And so people have been sharing, oh my God, it's been great stories about women back in the day, which is like, oh my God, if she became the whatever. Exactly. First exactly. nurse in her commu- whatever it is, I can do this.
1: Exactly, exactly. Thank you again. This mm-hmm. has been an amazing conversation.
0: Thank you so much for listening in on this latest episode of Uplifting Women podcast. Holly and Kristen appreciate your dedication to Uplifting Women and look forward to you joining them again soon. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Please visit your favorite platform where you found this podcast to leave a review. If you are an uplifting woman or a man who champions women's success with a story to share, Kristen and Holly would love to talk to you. Please visit upliftingwomen.net and leave us a message.